Father, we know this is the day of grace. This is the day of opportunity for men and women and boys and girls to call upon Christ in faith. We pray as a church this week that you would help us to walk in holiness as King David prayed, that we might teach sinners how to be converted to you. We know it is only in a clean heart that we are usable. And so we come, Spirit of God, and ask you today, you are our helper, you are our teacher. May you throughout this week use us. We pray and ask for our Vacation Bible School as we've been earnestly seeking you for opportunities to reach out and invite children, especially those who go nowhere. Lead us to those people this week. and Lead us through your word today. Help me in all that I have to do today. Fill me and use me and anoint me for Christ's sake. Amen. Would you take your Bibles, please, this morning and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. If you're new to the Bible, all the books that begin with the letter T are found in the New Testament. They go from long to short. Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd, is longer than the word Timothy, longer than the word Titus, and it comes right after Gary eats popcorn. Go everywhere preaching Christ. So there's nine books. If you can find one, you can find any. We've been in a series that we just finished called God's Prophetic Schedule, 31 messages. But before uh, summer's end, I hope to begin a brand new book of the Bible as we typically go verse by verse. But there are some questions, a plethora of questions that I've been asked in the subject that I want to address today. Not to mention this issue of men and women in ministry will heat up this week, possibly like never before in the history of evangelicalism, as the largest Protestant denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, with some 47,000 churches, is going to address this issue. Rick Warren was removed from the Southern Baptist Convention because of his ordination of women pastors. He went against the Baptist faith and message that he ascribed to, but now he's contesting that. In the press, no doubt, we'll cover this in great detail. Add to that, this is not a subject I've addressed in detail in some eight years, and there are hundreds of new believers who are listening to us each week, many who are here. And the culture is convincing us that we should acquiesce on what God has clearly said. And some of the major women Bible teachers in the last few years have left from what they originally taught. They should not teach in a mixed audience. And now all of a sudden they have a new light and they have a new perspective. Saddleback Church, which Rick Warren has pastored for some 40 years, taught, no, that's wrong. But all of a sudden he's had new light that he never saw before. And so the person who took his place And Andy Wood and his wife, Stacy, they're called co-pastors, now see it differently. One woman, in airing her frustration, said this, God called me to be a pastor. The men in my denomination refused to recognize this, so I guess I'm going to have to find another denomination. I was once, in fact, I was the very first of four elders at Lake Point Baptist Church, which is the fourth largest Southern Baptist church in the convention, and I wrote the position paper of the roles that men and women should play in the church, and the entire church adopted that. Now they've discarded that. In fact, Beth Moore preached there recently. Add to that, you have pastors like Joel Olstein, whose wife is a co-pastor. You have uh, certainly women pastors, like Joyce Meyer, you have women Bible teachers like Christine Kane and Priscilla Schreier and Ann Graham Lotz who have no shame in preaching in a mixed audience and preaching in a church on a Sunday morning. And sadly, what is happening is it has certainly de-emphasized the high and holy role that God has given to women in the church. One prominent pastor wrote this on his website. He said, I believe that a woman can do exactly what God has called her to do. Deborah led the entire nation of Israel in the Old Testament. Well, that's news to me, and we're going to look at Deborah next time. Then he goes on to say, I'm deeply saddened that some people still believe that a woman's place is to be barefoot and pregnant. Now, I resent that straw man 
that godly men believe that women should be barefoot and pregnant. But then, of course, you have Louis Giglio, the pastor of Passion City Church in Atlanta, who recently also had Beth Moore preach on a Sunday morning. And only a few members protested. Most had no problem. One leading member in the church wrote these words, to walk out on Beth Moore would be similar to walking out on a preacher-teacher because of their race. I recognize that you would say it would be because of your biblical interpretation of certain texts, but these texts have been historically interpreted by sexists and chauvinists that put their spin on it in a society given over to sexism. I'm convinced that truth is marching on as evidenced by Beth Moore's preaching at Passion City. And again, the vast majority of the thousands that meet there on Sunday morning had no problem at all. Now, obviously, in our passage this morning, and this portion of Scripture is going to take three weeks, at least that's what I have planned to get through it. In verse 12, he says, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Now, obviously, God is forbidding something in the text, so what precisely is he forbidding? Can a woman be a pastor? Can a pastor give a woman authority to preach in his church on Sunday morning? And then add to that, you have the parachurch movement, which we'll discuss more in detail next time, who will say, well, what applies in the parachurch outside the local assembly on Sunday morning is very different from what takes place when we meet together. And then there'll be people who will say, well, look at Miriam or Deborah or Huldah or Noadiah or Isaiah's wife or the four daughters of Philip. Don't these endorse that women can be pastors? So before you walk out on me this morning, (laughs) stay for all three weeks because you will not get a full perspective unless we work through. Now, what we look at this morning seemingly has nothing to do with women being pastors, but contextually it has everything to do with it. And that's why we're going to start this morning where we're going to start. I wanna read the whole text that we'll cover again in three weeks, beginning in verse eight, 1 Timothy chapter two, verse eight. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women claiming, making a claim to godliness. A woman must receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Now the women's movement, women's ministries in the church has gained great momentum. Some of it is very, very good. Sadly, most of what is happening under the banner of women's ministry is very, very bad. So what is the role of men in women in ministry? Now let me start with three preliminary statements in order to be able to answer this question. First, the authoritative answer to this question is found in Holy Scripture. And so I start with the premise that all Scripture is God-breathed. Theos Nutos, the breath of God. We translate it in most English Bibles, inspired. And so what is important here is not what the world says, but what God says. Now we have to discern what God says as we study through this portion of scripture, but that's our authority, not our opinion, but the word of God. We need to lay aside the culture and what it may be saying. We need to lay aside a human reason that is not subservient to the holy authority of Scripture. The final authority is the Word of God. Jesus said, your word is truth. He said, sanctify them in the truth. Now, if you're not certain over the authority of Scripture, I'm happy to give you as a gift a little booklet I wrote for Answers in Genesis, How to Prove the Bible is True. Come to meet the pastor, you'll get a free one. If you've already been there and you don't have it, ask me. We'll make sure you get one. Your word is truth, sanctify them in the truth. Now, you can deny the law of gravity, but it doesn't change the law of gravity. 
And you can deny what Scripture says. It does not change the truth. Now, we are living in what I believe is the last of the last days, though the last days began on the day of Pentecost. We're at the end of the age. We know that by the fact that God said at the end of the age, Israel, he would bring them and gather them back into the land. And when you add the moral culture of today, the days of Noah, the days of Lot, you add to the fact that at the, in the latter times, which again is a term reserved not just for the start of the last days at Pentecost, but the very end of the age, we would have growing apostasy, those who would fall away from the faith. And so with all that said, I think more and more people are following the crowd and the culture rather than what Scripture says. And to teach what we're going to look at in the next three weeks will cause many people in many churches to get up and leave and never to come back. So there's all kinds of questions that come to the forefront. You know, sometimes in a church, they can't find a man to teach a class. And you have maybe a gifted Bible teacher who's a woman, and she asks, well, why can't I teach the, tr- the class? Now, notice what he says here in verse 8. Positively, he says, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. This word, I want, is the Greek word bulamai. You can translate it, I desire, or I will, or I direct, depending on your English Bible. It's not the desire of a wish, it's the desire of a command. He's speaking here with his apostolic authority. This is what I want. And so he's giving positive directions here to the men, as we'll see, in deference to the women. And he gives an authoritative prohibition to the women. We just read verse 12, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Now, again, I recognize that many people today have a low view of inspiration, thus the mainline churches. All the mainline churches, for the most part in America, now deny the infallibility and the inerrancy of Scripture, whether it's United Methodist or the PCUSA or uh, Lutherans. Not, there's one conservative Luther, Lutheran denomination, but most Lutherans in America, and on and on we could go. And, of course, you have to ask here, is Paul giving a timeless, eternal principle? Or is he, as many liberals are saying, he's just a misogynist, he's prejudicial against women, and that's why he gives this prohibition. Or some would say he's accommodating himself to the culture because the culture believed that's what they should do, that that's what he is doing. Well, if this is not what God said and Paul is simply accommodating himself to please men, then he's acting as a sinner, not someone who's inspired by God. A.T. Hansen, who wrote in the Cambridge Bible Commentary, says this, just as the first half of the chapter showed us the author at his best, so the second half seems to show us him at his worst. Christians are under no obligation to accept his teaching on women. So I start with the premise that the Bible is the word of God. But there's a second premise that's critically important, and it is that we allow not just a small segment of Scripture or a verse out of context to drive our thinking, but we must look at the whole of Scripture. And so liberal theologians are notorious for doing the things that they accuse us of. They say, well, you're just taking a proof text. Uh, A proof text is a text out of its context in order to make some theological point. They're well known for doing that. No, it's actually the evangelical who takes the Scripture seriously, who looks at the whole of Scripture. Now, certainly there are aspects of Scripture that have only a cultural expression, When the Apostle Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss, the timeless principle is we greet one another. We might say in the West, greet one another with a handshake. But in still many parts of the world, Eastern Europe and the Middle East, men kiss men. Uh, The cultural expression would be a holy handshake. And all God's men said, (laughs) amen. (laughs) The purpose 
is not to twist the scripture, but to find out if something is culturally expressed, what's the eternal unchanging principle for us to apply. And there are some who would say that excluding a woman from being a pastor is simply a cultural mandate and is not a timeless principle. This is why it's essential that you be here, especially for the third message in this series, because we'll see this is not culturally mandated. This is an eternal, unchanging principle of God. Certainly no pastor who takes scripture seriously would say that God would mandate, say, foot washing today. But what we would say is that Jesus taught a principle that's unchanging, and that is servanthood. In those days, they didn't drive to church in a car. They walked there. You walked to a friend's home, often in dusty or muddy streets. And when you arrived, though maybe you were clean on the rest of your body, your feet were dirty. And so it's important that we look at the whole of Scripture to come to a conclusion. There's a third preliminary statement that I think is essential to look at as we consider the roles of men and women in the church. And that is, in interpreting the Scripture, again, on the one hand, we look at that which is permanently valid and that which is contemporary cultural, but it's also essential that we look at everything that God has said in Scripture, both sides of the Bible, that we have a broad perspective letting Scripture interpret Scripture. Because many times someone will reach down and they'll say, well, look at the four prophetesses of Philip's daughters. Or they'll say, look, Paul said a woman could prophesy in church. And they assume that means a woman can preach in church. And so it's essential that we, we, one, understand that the Scripture is the authority. Two, that we understand that there are cultural expressions. But third, that we plainly and clearly understand that Scripture must interpret Scripture. So those are some premises that I'm starting with. There in your outline, there are two principal points that we want to look at today. First, the conduct of men, and then the conduct of women. So we want to begin with the conduct of men in public worship, the conduct of men in public worship. Again, he begins here in verse 8, therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Of course, whenever you see the word therefore, you ask, what is the word therefore, therefore? And that's important. So it goes back to the preceding paragraph. Look at uh, the opening verse here in chapter 2. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. So when the church gets together, it's critically important that we express our humility before God. And one aspect of our humility before God is prayer. And where there's much prayer, there's much power. Where there's little prayer, there's little power. And in the paragraph that precedes Paul's admonition here in verse 8, he is underscoring the priority of prayer, and he begins by looking at the diversity of prayer. Look at the different words that he uses, four words, entreaties, prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings. The word entreaties is a Greek word that means to need. And so we express our needs before God. Why? Because God cares about your needs this morning. You say, well, he doesn't care about this little thing, but he cares about this big thing. Nothing is big to an all-powerful God. Everything is important to him. The second word is the word prayers, and it's the Greek word prosukos, and it means to prostrate yourself. It speaks of the sacredness of prayer. It talks about worshiping the living God in prayer. And the third word is petitions, and it has the idea, the original Greek, of putting a word in the ear of a superior. And so when we come to God, we come to God through Christ, our Savior, and we put in his ear a word because we recognize that he is able to do all that he has promised. And the fourth word here is thanksgiving. It's eucharisto. We get our word eucharist from it, as some describe the Lord's table, though the New Testament never uses that term. But it speaks of gratitude, prayers of thanksgiving. And again, that's part of our worship too. It's not just a gimme, gimme here and a gimme, gimme there. We are to go to God with grateful hearts. And if you are not a thankful person, then you're out of fellowship with God. That's one of the marks as we discussed last time. 
that if we're in the center of God's will, we're not grumblers, we are people that have gratitude in our heart. So he looks at the diversity in prayer. Notice also the scope of prayer. The scope concerns all men. And of course, though all men are not named here, certainly the words all men covers it all. You can't pray for everybody in the world by name, but you can pray for those who you know and those who you know about. And in verse two, he gets very specific for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So our prayers are not simply for our close friends, for our family members, but yes, even for leaders. And remember who is in charge when he writes this epistle. The guy's name was Nero. And if you know your church history, he was not a nice man towards Christians. And so all men includes those who are lost, like Nero, and those who are saved, those who are near us, those who are far away from us, or to bring it down in political terms, if you're an independent for Republicans, if you're a Republican for Democrats, doesn't matter who's in office, you may not like who's in office, but we are commanded to pray for those who are in office. Your senator, your congressman, your president. And sometimes we need to put some feet to those prayers to get out and vote. And I'm told it was this church because of the Wednesday night. And some of you have never come on a Wednesday night. You should come, especially this Wednesday. You don't want to miss it. But I was told it was this church that made the impact in Columbia because hundreds of you called and said, we want this pro-life bill passed. And they passed it and the governor signed it. And the next day, the Supreme Court of South Carolina, it was brought before them and they're gonna review it on the 27th. I'll tell you, if there's a vote for the murder of innocent children in the womb, that will be a, a vote against South Carolina. And that will only invite trouble in our nation and in our country and in this state. Verse two, he goes on and he speaks about the results of prayer for kings and all who in iniquity, so that, here's the reason, so that we, we believers, may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So through prayer, we can hold back trouble in the world. And so God looks at the world with his eye on eternity. The purpose of the state is to maintain law and order. The purpose of the church is to pray for the state. And so why should we concern ourselves in praying for all those who are in authority over us? Well, the answer is given in verses three and four. This is good. That is praying in the results that prayer brings. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So prayer rightly understood is not a selfish thing. It's not so that we can simply enjoy our own personal peace and prosperity. The purpose of prayer is not to get man's will done on earth, but to get God's will done on the earth. And what is God's will? Foremost and first, the conversion of souls. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So you have the priority of prayer, you have the diversity of prayer, you have the scope of prayer, you have the results of prayer. Now look at verse five. Again, this is setting the context, the basis for our prayers. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. This one in whose name we pray is dubbed here the man Christ Jesus. Understand his deity is not in dispute. He has already underscored the deity of Christ in the opening verses and that he associates the Son with the Father as the source of grace and peace and mercy. And so the divinity of Christ is not here in question. The emphasis here is on his humanity, which allows him to serve as our mediator. The nature of a mediator, as Job underscores, and he said, I have no such mediator. The emphasis of a mediator is to represent two different parties, a go-between. He must represent both sides equally. And so in this case, for us to be represented, the mediator would need to be both God and man. 
And so verse six tells us that this mediator is the one, notice, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. And so this great price that was paid, salvation is not cheap, it cost God his son, it cost Christ his own blood, he provided the ransom. And this word ransom means to purchase a slave. That's what he has done. He has purchased us out of the slavery of sin. And if you know Christ as your savior, that is a great truth to meditate upon. So mankind needs to be ransomed. Why? Because we are in a desperate state. We are under the wrath of God by children. Uh, We are children of God by wrath, Paul will say in Ephesians 2. We are guilty. And so God provided a substitute. And Paul is gripped with this truth. Notice in verse 7, he said, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So the same God who ordains the end creates the means to the end. And the means to the end is both preaching and prayer. And so it's within this context that Paul says to us here in verse 8, therefore, I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. That's the reason for the therefore, all right? So having addressed the rule of prayer when the church is gathered, Paul now expounds on the role of prayer. Point A there in your outline, men are to pray exercising their leadership role. Men are to pray, exercising their leadership role. Paul stated definitively that men should lead in prayer in the local assembly, which is why we have men lead out in corporate prayer every time we gather together. Now, let me point out here that the word men is not the word for like anthropos, for anthropology, meaning men and women alike, like all men are sinful but it's the particular gender word, a man in deference to a woman. And so he's speaking of the male gender here. And Paul is certainly, as we'll see in a moment, is not excluding women in prayer. He plainly teaches here and in other passages, again, Scripture must interpret Scripture, like in 1 Corinthians 11, that men and women alike should pray when the church is gathered. Listen to these words in 1 Corinthians 11. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. So in giving instructions on how, say, a woman should pray in church in the service, he is very, very clear. But there's an assumption here is that a woman can pray and prophesy. And we will uh, examine very carefully a few weeks from now what it means for a woman to prophesy in church. Look at verse 8. Therefore, I want the men. Some of you need to get a hold of this this morning. Some of your children are going off to the university. They're leaving your home. And they're fuzzy on this issue. And they're walking into now so-called evangelical churches that are denying this issue. You should sit down with your sons and daughters and say, do you understand what a woman is to do in a church and what a man is to do in the church? So in these messages, I'm not just saying what a woman can't do, but I'm going to be speaking to what a woman should be doing. And when you reverse the roles, a woman is going to sacrifice the high and holy calling that God has called her to do. So every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But a woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. So he's giving instructions on how she should pray when the church is gathered. Verse 8, therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Now this command is critically important for at least two reasons. First, it reminds me that In the first century, prayer was not restricted to some ecclesiastical head, as in some churches today. The bishop prays, the priest prays, the pastor prays, clergy prays, but no one else. But second, Paul is reminding us that male members should be the leaders when it comes to prayer. The instruction from these two passages put together teach that when a woman prays, she is not to usurp the leadership of men. 
praying with a head covered as a woman, which was the cultural expression in the first century of respect, but the timeless principle is that she still respects her husband. Study Ephesians 5. The woman is called to respect her man. The man is called to love agapao, her, her wife as Christ loved the church. So praying with a head covering on recognized that he was the head of the home. But male headship is being denied today in these churches. They deny male headship in the home, and they deny male headship in the church. But it's with a leader in the home, a man, that a child learns to respect authority. Where does he learn to respect ecclesiastical authority or governmental authority or military authority? He or she is supposed to learn it in the smallest microcosm of life. And because we have thrown that out, we have a generation of rebellious children. Ask any public school teacher. They spend most of their day in discipline. Now, I think it's interesting that very often women have prayer meetings, and that's a marvelous thing. But men should be leading in the role of prayer. Of course, in the first century, the church had no special buildings to meet in. They, they met in fields. They met under covered areas. They largely met in homes. And so please understand that the principles found here do not um, apply simply within a church building, as some so foolishly argue. Paul's point is, is that whenever men and women are gathered together, that men are to lead in the prayer. Secondly, men are to pray exercising a right relationship with God. Not only are men to pray exercising leadership when the church is gathered, men are to pray exercising a right relationship with God. And so we are told now, beginning in verse 8, therefore I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands. Now, it was customary for Jewish men and Christian men in the early church to pray sometimes with arms lifted up and extended. Nothing wrong with that today, but understand that it's in the context, first and foremost, of prayer. And our traditional posture of folding the hands is actually found absolutely nowhere in Scripture. Nothing necessarily wrong with that. But just know it's not found anywhere in Scripture. Here's a slide that will help you to see the various ways in which people are seen praying in Scripture. In 1 Kings 18, Solomon is standing with outstretched hands when he prays. Uh, many times in Scripture, like Daniel, in Daniel 6 and verse 10, he is kneeling when he prays in spite of the government in, uh, injunction for him not to pray. In 2 Samuel 18, David is actually sitting when he prays, and he's sitting on his throne specifically as he prays. And like manner Abraham, he falls on his face in prayer. Uh, Eleazar in Genesis 24, he's bowed low before the Lord in worship. In 1 Kings 18, the prophet Elijah is crouched down with his head between his knees when he prays. In John 17, the Lord Jesus is praying with his eyes open, looking up to heaven. And of course, since Jesus said at all times men ought to pray, and since Paul said pray without ceasing, then you certainly, when you're driving down the street, want to have your eyes open. The critical issue is not the posture of the body. The critical issue is the posture of the heart. And he further defines that here by lifting up holy hands. And so Paul will say in Ephesians, pray at all times, how? In the spirit. So I want men in every place to pray lifting up holy hands. And so holy hands, since it's the hand that executes most of the things that we do in this life, by saying holy hands, he's underscoring a holy life. When King David prayed after deliverance from his enemies, we're told in 2 Samuel 22 and verse 21, the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He has recompensed me. In like fashion, in Psalm 24, 
Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? This is David who wrote this psalm. And who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Clean hands in scripture are symbolic of a blameless life. That is, no unconfessed, no harbored sin in the heart. And so effective praying must take place with holy hands, with clean hands. And he wants to underscore that if you're going to pray and you're to lead in prayer, you are to pray in a right relationship with the Lord. Third there on your outline, men are to pray exercising a right relationship with their fellow man, not only with God, but with their fellow man. And again, we read here further in verse 8, Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands, notice, without wrath and dissension. Without wrath, some of our English Bibles say without anger. It requires that you're in good terms with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and certainly the secular world as well, as much as it depends on you. But a person who's constantly a troublemaker in the church is not a peacemaker, and such individuals have no power with God. And so instead of fostering unity, some people foster dissension, or the 2020 NASB says dispute. Uh, The ESV renders the Greek word quarreling. Why? Because they have anger in their hearts. And angry people have no power with God. They have no effectiveness in prayer. And so Paul is commanding us in Philippians 2 to do everything without complaining or arguing. And of course, this truth is underscored all the way through Scripture. For instance, in Psalm 66, 18, if I regard, it's the Hebrew word, if I cling to, if I cherish, not if I sin, but if I cling to sin, you know you're out of the will of God, you've compromised the will of God, either directly or through the appearance of evil, but I cling to it anyway. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. In like fashion, Peter said this in 1 Peter 3, 7, when instructing married couples, husbands in the same way treat your wives with consideration as the weaker partners and show them honor as fellow heirs of the grace of life. In this way, nothing will hinder your prayers. A man who's a tyrant over his wife has a prayer promise from God. Their prayers are going to be hindered. And this is why Jesus made this statement again, that we be in right relationship with one another. On the Sermon on the Mount, he says, therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar, and go first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. So don't come and worship me, the Lord says, when when you've got a huge problem with some brother or sister in the assembly. Get that fixed first. So any sin between God or man makes our prayer ineffective. And so in prayer, whether you lift your hands, whether you kneel, whether you have your head between your legs, whether you're standing up with your eyes open, whether you're prostrate before the Lord, prostrate before the Lord, It's essential that there's no undealt with sin in your heart. And so men are to take the lead when it comes to prayer. They should be the first to hit the microphones. They should be the first to start an assembly of prayer in the adult Bible fellowships. They are to lead in prayer. Not excluding women, but they are to lead. Secondly, not only does he deal with the conduct of men in public worship, he now goes on to speak to the conduct of the women in public worship. The women in public worship. And this section is divided into two subjects. The first concerns the woman's dress. The second concerns the woman's behavior. And we'll deal with the first today, and next time we'll focus on her behavior in the worship service, especially as it relates to being a pastor in the church or whether it's permissible for her to teach in a mixed audience. So let's consider first the highlighted truths here in verses 9 and 10, namely that women are to adorn themselves in modest apparel. 
Now, notice, if you will, here in verse 9, Paul begins, likewise, I want women to adorn themselves. Now, I think before we read any further, we should pause here for a moment. It's quite true that Paul will instruct, instruct women to dress modestly and sensibly, but there's also a place for women to adorn themselves. And so, ladies, if you're looking for the biblical basis for going shopping, here it is right here. There's a biblical justification in Scripture for a woman not looking dowdy or frowdy, but to dress properly. Now, God has only made two genders. He made women and he made men, period. There's not 80 or 100 or however many they're coming up with. There's two genders, period, no more. But God does not prohibit women and their feminine adornment. And the Greek word for adorn, we covered it recently in the Revelation, is cosmeo. It can refer to the universe, the cosmos, or as in this context, it can refer to cosmetics. So to adorn is to enhance your beauty. And so when a lady adorns herself, she's trying to present herself at her best. And of course, here in Scripture, some will take issue on the externals. Some Christians, yes, even whole denominations, dismiss this truth because they take some of these truths out of context. And this is why we need to look at the whole of Scripture. If you have any questions, just read the Song of Solomon. But the Bible certainly speaks to the fact that while man looks at the outward appearance and God looks at the heart, man still looks at the outward appearance. And that's why it's important for both men and women to relate in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. And of course, the beauty that both Peter and Paul will underscore is not just outwardly, but inwardly, both their conduct and their character. For instance, Peter said this in 1 Peter 3. He said, your adornment must not merely be external. So he's not excluding external adornment, but he says it shouldn't be only external. Braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses, But he says, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of the Lord. Or here in this book that we're in this morning, 1 Timothy 2, if you look again here at verses 9 and 10, he says, likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not, circle that word not, that small negation, not with braided hair in gold or pearls or costly garments, but, circle that word but, but rather by means of good works as is proper for women, making a claim to godliness. So he's underscoring the beauty of character and her conduct of a woman who claims to be godly. So the contrast between physical beauty and moral beauty is a matter of emphasis, and that's important. Paul is not teaching here that women should not care for themselves outwardly, bodily, but it shouldn't be done to the exclusion of the beauty of character. He assumes that there'll be some modest in physical adornment, which he has just commanded. But it needs to be fitting to those who make a claim to be godly women. Now, again, people take this verse. Again, there's whole denominations and local assemblies that say a woman shouldn't wear jewelry, she shouldn't wear makeup, she shouldn't braid her hair, she shouldn't wear nice dresses. And while they may be well in their meaning, they are mistaken in their interpretation of the text. This is one of the great not-buts of Scripture, not this but this, and depending on the context, sometimes the not buts mean not only one thing, but also mainly another. Let me illustrate. John 15, 15. You should put this out in the margin, John 15, 15. Jesus said, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but he said, I have called you friends. Now, elsewhere in the scripture, Jesus does call us servants. He calls us slaves, and he reminds us that a servant is not greater than his master. And he said that he that would be great among you must be the slave of all. 
And so when he makes this statement in John 15, 15, he's not excluding the fact that we are still his servants. But he is underscoring that not only are we servants, but here for emphasis, we can be friends. We were, as Paul said, prior to conversion, enemies of God. But the doctrine of New Testament reconciliation means that you are now a friend of the Lord if you've been reconciled. Another example put out in the margin, John 6, 27, John 6, 27. There Jesus stated, do not work for the food which perishes, but, again, not, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Now, at first glance, Jesus seems to be saying that a person should not work for physical food. Obviously, he's not saying that. That would certainly contradict 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 10, where he said, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. So if someone comes to the church looking for a handout because they're lazy and refuse to work, we're not to give it to them. The Lord is simply underscoring that spiritual food is more important than physical food, that that should be a higher priority. And so here, when he speaks of adornment, it's not this, next verse, but it's this over here. And I want you to see that there's no absolute prohibition. Next slide, if you would. There's no absolute prohibition against jewelry and the braiding of hair and nice dresses and so forth. Rather, it's an issue of emphasis. And the emphasis is on the requirement, one, of modesty and, modesty and restraint. And so this is a rejection of extravagance. And the contrast here is between mere external beauty and true beauty of a godly life. He's not saying that Christian women should wear clothing that's out of style and never wear makeup or jewelry, but he is emphasizing the inner person, the character. And so how much time do you spend in front of the mirror and how much time do you spend in the mirror of God's word? That's the difference here. And so God wants a woman to be modern and modest, but at the same time, she is not to reject the development of those inner qualities. And so outward appearance is important. And if a woman totally neglects that, she's still calling attention to herself in a negative way. Like what's wrong with her? As Anselm, we paraphrase his words, when in Rome, do as the Romans. He was the guy, of course, who discipled Augustine. And so there should be some cultural relevancy in the way that we dress. But it needs to be modest and discreetly, and therein lies the challenge for women of our day. Because sadly, most of the apparel that's being offered is less and less modest and discreet. And sadly, insecure women will many times want men to focus on their body, the upper body, the legs, and we have the shrink-wrapped look of our day. And that's sad. And sad, sadly, sometimes men want to, their wives to dress that way. Like, here, look, look what I got. Like they're a piece of meat. No, a woman needs to dress modestly and discreetly and reserve the display for the promise you made at the marriage altar. And so people sometimes say, well, does Community Bible Church have a dress code? And I'll say, of course we do. Every church has a dress code. You can't come to church typically. Most churches in America nude, can you? I think not. So every church draws a line somewhere. The question is, where do we draw the line? And where does God draw the line? And I'm certainly not the head of the fashion police here. That's not my job. And I recognize that people come here sometimes very immodestly. And that's okay, because we want to reach them for Christ. We had a woman who came very immodestly. I said, well, why'd you come to our church? And she said, well, because the church not far from here told me I couldn't come in because of the way I was dressed. She came to our church, and she came to meet the pastor, and she received Christ as Lord, and it was a short throw before her dress began to change. And so it's important that as Christians, and it's important as, 
As mothers, you know, sometimes when we have our youth director and our youth pastors and others, you know, making the environment safe and honoring to the Lord, and maybe a visitor comes and we say, hey, put this shirt on, you know, and it's done sensitively and carefully. And, but when young women in our church come dressed that way, it's very difficult to try to monitor that behavior with teenage girls when the mothers don't do it. And so we need to be patient on the one hand, especially for new and developing Christians, but at the same time, we need to teach people God's standards so they can grow and learn to do the right thing. And wanting to believe the best, I assume in most cases, it's an issue of ignorance and not evil intent. But we're called, while on the one hand, to be all things to all men, it's not our likeness to the world that wins the world. It's our distinctiveness, where we are salt that preserves righteousness. We are light that dispels darkness. And so Peter underscores the fact that a woman can dress these things, but she wants to dress in a way where she displays what he calls a meek and quiet spirit. And ladies, obviously, if you depend just on the externals, Sooner or later, you run out of ammunition. And if that's what it takes to win a guy, you don't want to win him. And so, one, women are to dress in modest apparel. Secondly, women are to adorn themselves in discreet apparel. So in addition to adorning themselves modestly, he underscores they are to dress discreetly. And here in 2 Timothy 2, Paul says the same thing as Peter. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly, in the second word, discreetly. The word discreet is the word sophron. It means soberly, with sobriety, well-balanced. It's quite possible for a woman to dress modestly and not to dress discreetly. And no doubt this was probably a problem in Ephesus when we read some of the historians of the day of women who came to church with these incredible hairdos with all kinds of jewelry in their hair. And basically when they walked in, it was a fashion show and they were shouting, look at me. And a woman's dress can be so bizarre sometimes and so nondiscreet that it's like a fashion show where they come to church not seemingly to worship the living God, which is the reason they're supposed to be here, but to say, look at me. And God wants us to think through that, not to call attention to yourself. Again, it doesn't have to be dumpy and frumpy. It can be up-to-date and modern, but it needs to be discreet. So third, women are to adorn themselves in godly character. They are to be modest in their apparel. They're to be discreet in their apparel. But then, and with this we'll conclude this morning, women are to adorn themselves in godly character. So negatively in verse nine, he's asking the women to reject the immodesty and the extravagance of the world. But Paul is not content, obviously, to leave it there. He wants them to develop godly character. Look at verse 10. But rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. Now, again, he's obviously not suggesting that good works are a substitute for clothing. But he is insisting that good works are the best, the finest of all adornments. A truly beautiful woman is not just beautiful on the outside, but on the inside. And again, what should be her goal? Why should this be her goal? Because she makes a claim to godliness. Godliness is the word theosabea, and it means God-centered. She's saying, I'm a God-centered person. And because all beauty ultimately comes from God the creator, any woman who professes to be godly should be God-centered in her beauty, both on the outside and on the inside. And even if the world may consider you, quote-unquote, plain, and there are no plain people in God's book, 
because it's essential that a woman and a man, all of us, get our self-image from Scripture. God uniquely wove us together in our mother's womb for a purpose. He gave us the frame that he gave us to highlight the character that he wants to highlight on the inside. So how can we apply this passage of Scripture? Let me make three applications as we close our time this morning. Number one, uh, ask this question first for the women. Are you as a woman developing inner beauty? Are you as a woman developing inner beauty? Everyone knows that in spite of facelift technology and the wrinkles are coming, (laughs) the sags are sagging, we're all getting older. And if you're depending simply on outward beauty, it is a losing battle. But when you see a lady who's beautiful on the inside, she tends to be even more beautiful on the outside. And so contrary to where our society places all the emphasis, just remember that the glamour girls of yesterday are the elderly grandmothers of today. Glamour is corruptible. But pure beauty on the inside, it it only grows, it only develops, and so there's the cosmetics of our character that requires that you spend time, one, gathering on the Lord's day. You don't blow that off. And sadly, there are many watching me today who could be here, but they're not here because they are in disobedience and sin. And you expect to grow when God calls you to gather with his people on the Lord's day? Now, some are here listening because they are getting some vitamin supplements before they go to their church at 11. We get people writing me from all across America saying, our pastor doesn't open the word of God and teach it. I tell them, look, you find the best church you can and you pray for that pastor and you serve in that church and you can still grow however, whatever means God gives you. But there are people who should be here who are not here. Secondly, I would ask this question to the men. Are you as a man leading? Are you as a man leading? Now, he's already spoken to the fact that men should take the leadership when praying in the assembly. And when, while women can pray in the assembly, they're not to take the leadership. And men, you should take the leadership not just in the church, but in your home. Don't leave it to your wife to be leading the children all the time in prayer. They need to see that you pray. You say, I don't know how to pray. You can talk. If you can talk, you can pray, because prayer is speaking with God. And if you don't know Christ as your Savior, that's the first problem you need to solve. But if you know the Lord Jesus as your personal Savior, then you can pray. And ladies, let your husbands lead. And I know that someone wrote me recently, and we'll look at this more next time. She said, you know, I'm in a Sunday school class, an adult Bible fellowship, and in our church, and we lost our recent teacher, and no man wants to step up. And they've been asking me, since I have a gift to teach, if I should teach, for me to teach the class, what should I do? I said, don't do it. It's because you got a bunch of wimpy men in the class. Don't do what God, as we'll see, expressly forbids. Better not to have a class than to have a woman living in disobedience. And as I responded to her, I said, if need be, ask your pastor if you can start a woman's class. But forget those guys. If they're a bunch of wimps, then let them wimp together. (laughs) Again, we'll speak about this, but Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men. He admonishes the men to act like men, and that should certainly be true in prayer when we gather, and it should certainly be true in our homes, and our children and our grandchildren should see that we are leaders and that we take that God-given role very, very seriously. That being said, there are distinct God-given roles for the women that we're going to examine in great depth, so you need to come back. Third, and finally, are you acknowledging God by 
differentiating the sexes? Are you acknowledging God by differentiating the sexes? Now we'll see in the next few weeks that part of the temptation back in the Garden of Eden was the failure to acknowledge the differences. There is a difference in the sexes because, and because we've rejected that, we have actually created in the church an atmosphere to plant seeds for homosexuality and transgenderism. And in America, we are suppressing the truth of God. That's why if the most recent poll indicates that 79% of Americans are not in church this morning, a nation that is in a downward spiral is a church that refuses to give praise and thanks to God. And so we're suppressing God's right to rule in our nation. But it begins with the churches. We are to shine our light. We are to rub our salt because it's our righteous standards that help a culture to stay together. And it's when we shine the truth that we dispel the darkness. And listen, we'll study this in the next couple of weeks. Mainline churches... And now evangelical churches. Look, I'm so glad that none of my children or grandchildren are in a church where the leadership of men has been put down, where women are usurping that role. Because in churches that do that, they are feminizing little boys, they are emasculating the men, and they are creating an atmosphere for homosexuality. We're going to discuss this further, so stay with me. But we have girly boys in our day where they need male models. And the church is contributing to this evil. And when you study every mainline denomination, one of the first areas that they acquiesced on was the role of men and women. And so when they began to say women could be pastors, it was just a short throw before they began to endorse homosexuality. So you take even great churches like First Baptist Orlando that a decade ago was a preaching church winning people to Christ. They began to acquiesce on the roles of men and women, and now they are becoming affirmative in the lifestyle of homosexuality. Now, if you have problems with what I'm saying this morning, again, hear the whole thing. But if you hear the whole thing and you still have problems, you've got a bigger problem. And that is someone who's going to reject God's clear teaching from the Scripture has an unregenerate mind because you see when you were born again, you received the mind of Christ. What does that mean? It means you have a new capacity to embrace truth that you didn't have before you were converted. That's why Paul can say, a natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him. He cannot appraise them because they're spiritually discerned. And the only way to change that is to be born from above. And again, salvation is not cheap. It costs God his son. It costs Christ his blood. But it will cost you to die to self to admit that your sin is wrong and evil and it needs to be forgiven and changed so that you can have a birth from above, a home in heaven, and hopefully a godly home here on earth. Let's bow together in prayer. Now, our Father, we thank you for the truth of Scripture and the opportunity this morning to examine it. I pray in this day for the Southern Baptist Convention as they meet next week representing many, many of our brothers and sisters in Christ in America. Help them to do the right thing, not just with Rick Warren, but for all those churches that have departed from your clear teaching. I pray today for the men of this church. Thank you for godly men. Thank you for giving me a godly wife who's led women for decades. Thank you for the women of this church who affirm the roles that you have given them to do, not small things, but big things that influence the very flavor of what kind of home a child will grow up in. We know we've ignored these principles, and so many are just walking away from their Bible-believing church. 
Help us to be steadfast in a growing day of apostasy. You warned that in latter times that men would depart from the faith, from this biblical standard of truth that you've given us in every realm. So help us not to be shaped and conformed by the world, but to be transformed through the renewing of our mind that we might prove and show and demonstrate and testify that your will is good and acceptable and perfect. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing a hymn of invitation. Maybe you're here and you've received Christ in recent days. Your first step is to make it public by baptism. Believe, then be baptized. And so if you've made that decision, if you come down front today, you can let me know. I would be more than happy to baptize you as an emblem of your faith. If you're here and you've already been saved, you just like baptism, come this morning. You're here today and you've been saved and baptized, but you need a New Testament Bible-believing church as God commands. And if you are willing to listen, not to this preacher, but to what God's Word says, we would welcome you this morning. Matt, come and lead us. If you have a decision to make, step out and meet me here in the front.